Uh, so let me let me pray as we dive in. Uh, Father, thank you for this time and space again, and this very important issue that's going on in our uh, in our culture, in our lives, our own formation. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring your word to life tonight. That you would translate these ideas in such a way that we can internalize it and. Uh, and be shaped into the image of Jesus, and be equipped to help other people navigate the complexities around sexuality in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, so we, again, it, what I hope is happening throughout this course, and I'm glad to hear you know, a couple of you say that it's Maybe there's not even one takeaway, but you find that like the whole operating system is just subtly shifting to where you can have these conversations. You can apply this con this these uh, concepts in uh, real life. And and the the main goal for this is to be formed into the image of Jesus. To again point the finger inward. How am I thinking about sexuality? How am I stewarding my sexuality? Um, and then being empowered to help other people, to be both truthful and compassionate, to be winsome and uh, savvy at the same time. So um, hopefully those uh, goals are being achieved through our work together. Um, so again, just the, the biblical vision of sexuality really is, you know, the, the, the invitation, like you were saying, Brandon, this this you know, the secular vision of sexuality being kind of a, a sinking ship and the biblical vision of sexuality being, or you can just maybe swing that chair around so you're not, or um, sit in the back or, uh, yeah, yeah, just, just stand awkwardly in the corner. It's great. Um, yeah, the, the biblical vision of sexuality being one that is a beautiful portrait, a beautiful vision the Bible is not just a, a no message. The Bible holds up our bodies, our sexuality in such high esteem. And, uh, and you know, here's just a few snippets that male and female have co-equal value, that our sexual distinction displays God's nature and that the sexed body is a good thing, that, again, both male and female are created in the image of God, uh, blessed, given dominion, pronounced very good. I know this is just review that male-female displays the nature of God, his transcendence and imminence, his unity and amid distinction, um, the, his, desire, his desired relationship with humanity, and the body reveals truth. The body necessitates communion. The body invites reciprocity. And again, these are just some, um, some themes that emerge from Genesis 1 and 2, and we could talk a lot more about uh, biblical sexuality, and we have, uh, but just a few thoughts here to frame the whole conversation. So where we're going tonight is to talk about sexual distortions and and the prohibitions in the Bible around sexuality. And we we're doing this in week four for a reason. I think uh, depending on your upbringing, some churches might start with this on week one, like what does the Bible have to say about sexuality from like a boundary standpoint? Don't do these things. Uh, but this is framed in a larger context. And so see these images here. Um, the Bible primarily shares a yes message around sexuality because it is both valuable and powerful. Um, it's valuable because of all the reasons you know, that we've talked about 
that it's a window into the nature of God. It's a metaphor of the type of union God desires to have with his people. Um, Therefore, when I denigrate my body, when I denigrate my sexuality, I distort the image of God. So if I am a practicing homosexual, or if I am up to my eyeballs in pornography, or if I'm a married man, I'm sleeping around, or if I'm messing around with my girlfriend, or if I'm um, if I'm making a transition in my gender, all of those distort the image of God. It makes it harder for people to see who God is. Does that make sense? Like the glory of God is diminished in the earth because of his design in sexuality and what he intended to display through it. Uh, so the you see the um, the ring up there, the wedding ring. Um, my uh, wedding ring, it's not super expensive, but it does it has a lot of meaning for me because of what it symbolizes. And so <clears throat> my kids, uh, they like shiny things. And even just last night or night before last, my oldest son, Aiden, asked to see my wedding ring. And so I just took it off. I gave it to him and he was trying it on his fingers. We were kind of comparing finger size and, you know, what fingers is my ring fit on on his hand. And he thinks he's getting bigger and stronger than me. So he could barely fit the ring on the ring finger. And he was pretty proud of that. Um, But my kids also have wanted to play with my ring at younger ages, like at three years old. And I would not give them my wedding ring at three years old because of its value. I didn't want them to uh, misplace it, eat it, or any other number of, of outcomes because of the value. And again, not just the monetary value, but the symbolic value of what this ring uh, stands for. And in the same way, our sexuality, and when I do this talk with like teenagers, for instance, I'll talk about the wedding ring as a, as a, um, uh, as a, as a metaphor for valuing your body and your body because of what it symbolizes. You don't just go giving it away to anybody because of the diminishment of the value that happens when you do so. You protect the the wedding ring because of what it symbolizes, because of, because of its value. Um, another way to think about it is is that sex is powerful. Our sexuality is powerful because it, it's one of the clearest images of God in the earth because of our sexual embodiment, because of the act of sex uh, being such a a clear and powerful, formative uh, uh, experience and image of God, um, it has the possibility either to form us into the image of Jesus based on how we steward it or destroy us. And one metaphor that we've used with our own kids as we've been talking about sexuality more as my oldest is 13 and going through puberty and, and, uh, they're just, they're not exposed to a whole lot at, at their, within their school, but their friends are talking about more things, whatever. So we're trying to stay ahead of the, ahead of the curve. And we just talked about sex as a fire. And, uh, so we were at the dinner table a couple months ago and I said, is fire in the house, a good thing or a bad thing? And they had to stop and think about it. And a couple of the kids said, it's a good thing. Cause they're thinking of like a fireplace or a candle. A couple of the others were like, it's a bad thing. Cause they were thinking of like the kitchen table catching on fire. And I said, you're right. You're both right. Fire in the house can be a really good thing or can be a really bad thing depending upon its boundaries. Fire within its its proper boundaries in a fireplace is a beautiful thing. It gives light, heat, warmth, a, a sense of family and togetherness. Fire outside the fireplace is incredibly destructive. 
uh, it can destroy the whole the whole house and kill everything in it. Sex is the same way that um, within the boundaries God gave sex, it is a beautiful, life-giving uh, thing outside of the boundaries that God gave for sexuality because it's so powerful and has the power to destroy lives. Um, <clears throat> so sex is valuable. Sex is powerful. And because of that, there are lots of prohibitions in the scriptures, lots of boundaries. Don't set your bed on fire. Don't set your dresser on fire. Don't set your closet on fire. If you're going to if you're going to light a fire in your house, light it in the fireplace. It's similar in the scriptures. Um, there are all these kind of enumerations of of sex that the act of sex is for the marriage commitment between one man and one woman. And then it goes to great detail to enumerate all the ways that uh, sex should not be um, practiced, expressed, and so on. And not just sex, but our sexuality. Uh, So 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And there's interesting commentary on this verse. People have asked about this over the years, um, that that sexual immorality seems to stand apart from other sins. Why is that? And what's this idea of sinning against the body? It has everything to do with this idea of becoming one um, that, that sex symbolizes. So the Trinity is, again, a diversity or a, or a distinction in unity. Adam and Eve were made, were separated to be distinct and then brought back together in the act of sex within the commitment of marriage. And <clears throat> through, through the act of sex, two individuals become one in a very powerful way, not just physically, but a spiritual bond. And so when there's a lack of commitment, there's a tearing of the soul that happens. And that's why a lot of commentators believe Paul says sexual immorality. And in this context, he's talking about sleeping with prostitutes. So an actual like uh, sexual intercourse um, is a sin against the body because it tears the soul. Like there is a connection that is made because of what sex symbolizes and union with God. Uh, among the Trinity, and so to uh, to treat it cheaply, to sleep around, whatever, uh, is to sin against the body. You are literally tearing your soul to pieces uh, because of how powerful uh, the sexual act is. All right. So, any questions there before we dive into the kind of the ten main prohibitions in Scripture around sexuality? That was 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 18. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Yep. So 1 Corinthians 6 has a lot to say about sexuality. And all within, Paul references, uses a lot of language that echoes back to Genesis 1 and 2, kind of like Jesus in Matthew 19 talking about divorce. He's like, okay, in the beginning it wasn't so. um, God permitted this because of your hardness of heart. Paul also uses God's creational intent in 1 Corinthians 6 to justify or to explain why he's giving these kind of sexual boundaries to the church at Corinth. Um, Here's just a snippet from that passage. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, um, in that past tense verb, 
indicating that all of the things that were just previously listed are we are able to overcome in Christ, uh, which is a key point, especially around homosexuality. We'll come back to that uh, for for those who would argue that it's an inborn predisposition. Regardless, um, Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All right, so we'll go through these 10 sexual prohibitions. You could go through the scriptures and bucket them a little differently. You could maybe come up with 12, with 9. This is a pretty kind of standard, traditional reading of the scriptures, bucketing the 10 main sexual prohibitions this way, and in no real particular order, Uh, maybe other than frequency of of um, occurrence in the scriptures. All right, so lust. Um, And notice that we're going to start with lust, sexual immorality, uh, adultery, and divorce before we get to homosexuality. Sadly, in the church, homosexuality kind of has become the, the focus of sexual brokenness, and understandably so because in our culture it's so in our face, it's being kind of pushed on us in the church. Uh, however, in the scriptures, these other sexual distortions are more commonly, more frequently alluded to, and I would argue uh, affect more people than homosexual predispositions. So, you know, a lot of the guys that I've walked with struggle with pornography addictions or, you know, mental battles, fantasies, lust. Um, you know, the divorce rate in, in our nation is very high, uh, equally almost so among the church as it is outside the church, uh, and these all diminish the image of God, and we'll get to the redemptive hope on the backside, because after reading through all these, I think there could be a temptation for all of us to feel terrible, because <laughs> we have all broken uh, at least one of these, if not multiple. Um, that's where the redemption in Christ and the hope of the gospel comes in. But it's worth at least at least addressing the uh, the prohibitions. Okay, so number one, lust. Um, <clears throat> and by the way, just a disclaimer on the front end of this one, we're not talking about temptation uh, in pastoral ministry. I've had a lot of guys that beat themselves up who come in who maybe have had a pornography addiction in the past or whatever, and they come in and they're just constantly battling temptation and they have a hard time parsing out what is lust and what is temptation. And so we'll see if we can't tease that out here in a second, but I do want to make a distinction on the front end. We're not talking about temptation. We're talking about lust. Matthew 5, 27 through 30, you heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole of your body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Uh, Jesus doesn't mince words. It's a very, um, I don't know, it's a very kind of gut-wrenching teaching. Um, But uh, he takes the bar up in the Sermon on the Mount where the law had said, you know, don't commit adultery. And he does this with lots of other things, hatred and theft and and so on. But uh, he says, if you even look with a woman at a woman with lustful intent, uh, you've already you've com- already committed adultery with her. Um, so 
why? Why is this such a big deal? Why would Jesus go after the heart in this way? And what's going on in our heart? And if you go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, it, it begins to make sense that Adam and Eve were provided everything in the garden for their enjoyment. They were perfectly provided for. They had unbroken fellowship with God and one another. They had no need of provision, but there was one boundary. There was one prohibition uh, for their good that they were prevented from partaking in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when the serpent comes on the scene, essentially the serpent plants the lie in their heads that God is holding out on you, that there's something that, uh, that is good for you that God is, is preventing for, uh, you from accessing. And it became a, you know, grass is greener on the other side. I don't have enough. God is not good. I need more than what God has provided. And uh, this comes down to appetites. It looked good to the eye good for taste, good to make one wise, and so Eve, uh, Eve ate of the fruit. And Cain, likewise, uh, God says sin is crouching at your door, looking for someone to devour. Uh, master it so that it does not master you. We are um, uh, creatures that have impulses, appetites, and, uh, and a will and the design of God is for us to find our satisfaction and fulfillment within the boundaries that he has created, uh, knowing that an, an unchecked appetite, whether that's sexual or for food or for entertainment or whatever, uh, will destroy us. He knows what is good for us. This is just straight up parenting. Anybody who has had kids knows this intuitively that if I let my kids have whatever their impulse dictated, they would destroy themselves. And so as a parent, a loving parent, we give them boundaries because we possess a perspective that they don't have. And so Jesus here is saying that to even lust after something that you don't possess uh, is a distortion of God's creational intent. It says that what you have given me is not sufficient. I need to go after something else that doesn't belong to me. And in a sexual sense, the only God-given sexual union is between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. Anything outside of that is out of bounds in terms of God's sexual design and creational intent. Um, I heard, uh, I listened to this podcast, uh, the Bema podcast with Marty Solomon, and he, he had an interesting take because I've heard different theologians and commentators talk about like what makes humans different from animals. Um, you know, we are emotional. We, um, we can in interact with language and we can communicate. We are rational. And he made this case in this podcast that you could, you could argue that, you know, other animals display certain types of emotions, that other animals are rational based on certain definitions. His argument is there's only one thing that clearly delineates, uh, makes us distinct from the animal kingdom, and that is our ability to constrain our impulses. That we have the ability to say no to an appetite, to channel our, our will and our impulses in submission to God. If a lion is hungry, it eats. 
If it wants to mate, it mates. It does not fast for spiritual purposes to draw closer to God. It does not abstain and practice monogamy um, as a as a display of contentment in the nature of God. Humans alone can constrain our impulses, our appetites, uh, in submission to another's will, which is just an interesting an interesting thought. Uh, another reason why lust would be a prohibition. Um, Lust says, I am not content. The psalmist in Psalm 16 says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And lastly, lust consumes, um, but godly love is selfless. So the sexual ethic that we see throughout the scriptures over and over and over is one of selflessness. It is, I am content in God, therefore I'm secure, therefore I can give myself away and serve somebody else where lust is by, by uh, definition a consuming impulse that uses someone else for my own benefit and pleasure, even if that's internal and that person never knows it. Uh, before God, it distorts um, the nature of love from selflessness to selfishness. Any questions there before we move on? This is one of the more kind of abstract kind of prohibitions when we talk about sexuality. And I will close the loop talking about temptation when I have guys come in and and we don't have time to go through all the scriptures, but if, you know, for someone who is experiencing temptation, uh, I would say that's just such a normal, natural part of life. It's when we lay a hold of that temptation, dwell on it, nurture it, you know, so I tell a guy, you're at the gym, you see an attractive woman, and, and you, you acknowledge that, like something in you sees that and acknowledges that that is not yet sin, but then to cultivate that, to continue to look and to begin to cultivate something in the mind and the heart is where it trans transitions from just attraction, temptation to sin. When we start to, um, covet, to cultivate that and nurture it in our hearts and our minds. All right. We'll keep moving unless you guys just stop me. Um, the second prohibition, and these all kind of uh, overlap in different ways, sexual immorality. The Greek word here is porneia, where we get, of course, the word pornography. Um, this is very broadly used in Greek culture uh, among the Jews. Uh, when you look back at kind of patristic writings, and uh, the Jews basically lumped any sexual activity outside of the concept of marriage into this one theme of porneia. So this would be, they didn't have pornography in, in kind of our modern manifestation, uh, but pornography would certainly fit under the banner of porneia. Um, messing around with your girlfriend or your boyfriend would certainly fit under the banner of porneia. It's, it, it is most explicitly, it refers to sexual intercourse, but in practice within Judaism, it became this kind of umbrella term that covered really any sexual practice outside of the context of, uh, of monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, so many scriptures here that you could reference. Uh, Mark seven twenty one and 22, Jesus speaking, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, and that word again is porneia, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, so 
so much we could say on pornography and actually Debbie was just showing me some stuff that she's going to present in week six that she's been working on and why and, and how pornography is so destructive in our culture today. I don't know that we have to go in depth here. Um, I think we, if you've, if you have lived and breathed over the last 15, 20 years, uh, you know how rampant pornography has become as, as a, an epidemic in our, in our culture. Um, you know, we carry the world in this little box here and can access just about anything on the planet and the sheer volume of what's available, the exposure, uh, at such a young age, the rewiring of the brain that happens, um, Actually, there's, there's a lot of emerging science around neuroplasticity. And uh, I was reading one study, and I, I looked back for it so I could reference it. And I couldn't find it, so I apologize. I don't have the reference. But I remember reading a study, some university, and they had uh, electrodes hooked up to brains, men and women, and, and specifically men. And they, they had them looking at a series of images on the computer, a rainbow, a horse, you know, a chair or whatever. And then, and periodically they would flash up, you know, this is a secular university. So they'd flash up a picture of a a woman scantily clad or whatever. And they were measuring brain activity. And, um, and it was, it was interesting to note that, uh, oh, and then they would flash up pictures of like people fully clad just in social settings just normal, and whenever they would flash up pictures of people who were in normal social settings, um, a part of the brain would, would flash that dealt with uh, complex uh, emotions, that dealt with reason, and so on and so forth. Whenever a picture of a woman who was scantily clad would flash, the part of the brain would, would uh, illuminate that dealt with tools. Um, how a, like if it, the same part of the brain would activate if they, if they flashed a picture of a hammer or, uh, a screwdriver, and then a woman who is scantily clad is in the same category in a man's mind of, of a tool, something to use something, um, just an object that doesn't possess attributes or qualities that require more. Uh, nuanced thought, emotions, rational thought, and so on and so forth. Just an interesting thing that pornography is literally rewiring the human brain to place the opposite sex into a category in our brains that deals with people as objects uh, and objectifies them. Uh, It affects the person. It affects our relationship with God. It affects relationships. It reduces empathy. uh, and, And where, from what I've heard, Thankfully, I have not been a connoisseur of pornography in, since 20-something-odd years ago, but um, I have heard that violence, the amount of violence that is now rampant in pornography consumption is is just egregious. Um, and uh, so where pornography is consumed, violence, sexual violence is also proliferated. Um, so we'll just say it's, it's a bad thing, and uh, it's understandable that it becomes an addiction, I battled pornography addiction for many years, uh, but there is also freedom in Christ, and it takes uh, a holistic approach to inner healing, um, abiding in Jesus, and that passage that Jesus talks about cutting off your right hand, gouging out your eye. Um, You know, when I first started walking in freedom, God had met with me powerfully, but I 
I then didn't have the internet for three years after that because I didn't trust myself and needed to have a period of rewiring the brain. And so as I'm walking with these guys and they're struggling with pornography, I'm like, get rid of your phone. And they're like, well, I can't do that. I'm like, well, then you may not get free. Like, You may not walk in. If you're not willing to take some radical steps um, and cut off the hand, so to speak, and gouge out the eye, uh, then I don't know that the that 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 level of commitment that need for god is is truly there anyway a lot we could say there but that falls under porneia as a prohibition uh masturbation just kind of a sub subset here of porneia it always comes up as a question because it's not explicitly prohibited in scripture and it it depending on who you talk to and what you know focus on the family has one uh, angle on masturbation and you know, uh, John Piper has another. So if you, it depends on who you listen to. Um, where I would land is kind of going all the way back to St. Augustine in the fourth century, believe it or not. He talks about um, things like masturbation. And his whole take was the, the nature of sin is desire turned in on the self. Um, it is love turned in on the self. And so Sexual, the root of all these sexual distortions is, is this, is the arrow, the kind of the directional arrow of my sexual impulse. If it is directed outward towards God and appropriately towards my spouse, um, then it is within kind of the sexual boundaries that God has established. Whenever that sexual activity gets turned in on the self, even though masturbation is not explicitly, um, prohibited in scripture, I would lump it in with other things that aren't explicitly prohibited, like rape. Rape is not explicitly prohibited in scripture, but we understand intuitively that it's off, it's out of bounds uh, because uh, it crosses over the application of what I'm doing when I am, if I'm raping somebody, clearly violates other scriptural principles. And I would, I would suggest that masturbation falls within a similar category, that even though it's not explicitly prohibited, it falls within other scriptural principles of why it would be out of bounds, even when it's not coupled with a, uh, a fantasy world. So most masturbation is, which automatically puts it in the category of lust and porneia, uh, but for people for whom it's just a physical release, I'm not going to die on that hill. Um, however, I would... I would counsel people away from masturbation as a physical release, even uncoupled from a fantasy, a sexual fantasy, because it is a sexual expression that's turned in on the self, which is outside of the design of God for sex to be expressed as a selfless act for what that's worth. All right. Any questions so far? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I wish I could. I, that's why I was trying to go back and look for the actual terminology. I don't know the different parts of the brain from the prefrontal cortex to the... Yeah, it was it was like reason and intuition and emotion, like the deeper, all the complex thought that goes into interacting with another human, where I have to read your emotions. And um, whereas when I'm dealing with a hammer, it's just a tool that I'm driving a nail in with. I don't have to think, you know, too, with a lot of complexity. Um, so... Yeah, I apologize for the half-baked uh, reference there. 
Yep. Yeah. Yep. Any other questions there? Um, I, I forgot to mention this. Uh, masturbation has been named a national crisis in Japan for what that's worth. Not just pornography consumption, but men have become unable to have romantic relationships um, because they have they have trained themselves to please themselves and they have been become unable to engage in a sexual relationship with another human. Interesting. All right. Um, adultery. So this would be now kind of narrowing if porneia kind of is a catch-all net. Um, adultery would be what what will follow are more specific manifestations of porneia, any sexual activity outside the bounds of monogamous um, sexual relationship, committed relationship. Uh, so Matthew fifteen nineteen for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Of course, Jesus put lust into a category of adultery, but the broader biblical application is this idea of sexual intercourse or sexual activity with someone who is not my spouse. Um, and that, that applies to married and non-married. You don't have to be, in, in Jewish minds, you didn't have to be married to commit adultery. Uh, a single person who is sleeping around is committing adultery. Um, they are wed to God. Uh, there was actually all these ceremonies around um, virgins who were who were to become betrothed to a man because within Jewish custom, they were previously betrothed to God. And it was a big deal for a man to step into that place as a covering where the Father and ultimately God were uh, were and will, God will continue to be the head. But um, so to sleep around is to commit adultery, to break this covenant of, of, um, of sexual, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sexual uh, stewardship um, that uh, it is outside the bounds unless I am in a committed relationship within the context of marriage. Um, so again, why? Why is this a prohibition? Again, just all of these you can tack back to Genesis 1 and 2. And, um, you know, this is more clearly stated that the man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. What God has brought together, let no man separate. This is one of the clearest applications of, of sexual ethics that has um, spanned the centuries and the millennia from Jewish practice to Christian practice. That, uh, that, that sexual activity outside the boundaries of marriage is prohibited. Uh, divorce, similarly, and, and I know all of these are complex, and uh, sp- specifically divorce. I was commissioned to write a paper on divorce and remarriage for Antioch, and I got, I don't know, like five or six pages in and just kind of had to throw up my hands until I can get together with a bigger group because of the complex biblical uh, references and the complex cultural manifestations. However, it is clear that the the biblical precedent and Jesus specifically in Matthew 19, that there is a prohibition around divorce as a general rule because of what marriage images from Genesis 1 and 2. So Matthew 5, 31 and 32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, and again, that's where, you know, kind of these these open doors that Jesus seems to leave is where a lot of the complexity comes. What constitutes sexual immorality and, and other 
people have different um, interpretations of that. But makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, Matthew 19, 19. Matthew 19, 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Um, again, we don't have time to go into all the different scenarios tonight, but as a baseline, divorce is not God's intent because of the uh, intent of marriage imaging God and to tear that apart distorts or diminishes the image of God in the earth. So it is prohibited. Now, in the complexity of our lives, there we have to work that out uh, in real time. Um, homosexuality is also prohibited. Uh, you shall not lie with a, male, with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Um, Leviticus 20, 13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And because, again, this is such a big one, we're going to I'm not going to talk about it right now. We're going to circle back to it uh, and talk more in depth about homosexuality. Polygamy. Um, So, you know, this is not as commonly practiced today, but historically this has been a a very common practice in a lot of different cultures. But therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is another one that is not expressly prohibited in the scriptures, but within the Jewish mind, an ancient Near Eastern mind, if you notice in the scriptures, every example of polygamy is a dumpster fire in the Bible. And uh, so where it's not expressly prohibited, it is illustrated as outside of the boundaries of God um, because of these other uh, uh, teachings like Genesis 2.24, they shall become one flesh. And, uh, and so Lamech is the first to, you know, to start accumulating wives. He's a murderer. He is exercising a dominion of oppression and not of stewardship. And then on down through the lines, every time that polygamy is, uh, is illustrated, it is a, just a total train wreck. Um, and so there's a lot of other scriptures that you could, argue could could kind of stand in as a prohibition but it's not ever expressly prohibited but it is illustrated as outside of the boundaries of god's uh, design Uh, rape again like polygamy not expressly expressly prohibited uh, but every there's kind of a situational prohibition in deuteronomy 22 but every example in the bible is condemned similar to polygamy Um, and Again, just uh, thematically, the 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 oppression, the violence, the uh, the violation of another person's agency, and the uh, the adultery, the pornea. I mean, it it crosses over into just about every other prohibition, which is why it makes the historic list of prohibitions. Incest is expressly uh, prohibited. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Um, And uh, lots of reasons there, if not just biological and genetic. um, But um, uh, regardless, it is expressly prohibited in the scriptures. Uh, Bestiality, sexual activity with an animal. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Um, Jesus or, or God brought 
all the animals to Adam to see if one would be suitable for him, and none were found that were suitable to propagate the human race. Uh, and so Adam had to be separated and brought back together for fruitfulness, going back to that Genesis 1 creational pattern. So whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Uh, prostitution is listed last uh, because it it kind of falls into adultery, porneia, um, but it is expressly prohibited in the scriptures. And uh, but it's also it crosses over into some social issues where um, you know for a woman to be in a, a situation, especially back in ancient times where there weren't social services, uh, maybe a husband has died, maybe she has been. Uh, kicked out of the home, and the social mobility for women was very limited. And so there's actually a lot of, God shows a lot of compassion to prostitutes in the scriptures. Um, like the woman caught in the act of adultery, it's thought, uh, most commentators believe she was a prostitute. Um, Mary Magdalene and others uh, who, uh, or the, the woman who wets Jesus's feet and uh, pours out the perfume, wipes it with her hair, is a prostitute. And over and over, God is is bringing the outcast, bringing the um, the marginalized into His family. Yet prostitution is is of course still uh, a just a kind of express prohibition. All right, so that's more of just the nuts and bolts of the kind of ten prohibitions in Scripture. We're gonna kind of zero in on homosexuality for the balance of our time. But any questions there uh, before we move on? All right. Great. Was that a, a no scratch? Okay. Okay. So again, unfortunately, the church at times has disproportionately focused on homosexuality. And so I think the, the gay community has a legitimate grievance against the church for this kind of hypocrisy where we have turned a blind eye to certain other things, maybe divorce or uh pornography usage or whatever, and, and really focused on homosexuality. Yet at the same time, it is being uh, really forced upon the church, the body of Christ, and we'll talk about why here in a second. So we have to address it um, uh, as a standalone here for a moment. Uh, I have a lot of compassion for people who come through my office who deal with kind of lifelong sexual orientation issues. You know, uh, imagine a, a boy or a girl who's only ever been attracted to the same sex, maybe grew up in the church and has been told their whole lives that um, something's wrong with them and, uh, and, but, and, and trying to love God, trying to figure out what it means to be a disciple while still having this, this romantic attraction to the same sex that seems involuntary and seems unchangeable, seems immutable. That's a really difficult place to be in. Uh, it's a very, um, uh, not many people make it uh, who feel that predisposition towards attraction towards the same sex. In, make it meaning in the church as a disciple of Jesus. Um, the church kind of forces, and I'm being I'm way overgeneralizing here, kind of forces the issue and often drives individuals like that away. Or the church becomes accommodating and says, it's fine for you to, to be a homosexual and uh, and we've lost the middle ground of how do we extend compassion and patience and a generosity of spirit to people who struggle while holding the line of truth and creational purpose and intent. 
Okay, so a few thoughts on how we got to where we are culturally and historically that are helpful, and uh, this is where I mentioned at the very first week, there's a, a great teaching by John Tyson, pastor in New York City. He does on homosexuality. He was vis- visiting Bridgetown Church back in 2019, February of 2019, if I remember right. He did a, a like an hour and a half teaching that just buckle up. Don't put it on 1.25 or 1.5 speed. He talks fast already, and it is just loaded with research and context and pastoral um, uh, compassion and insight and wisdom. So some of this I just took from from that teaching and then some from other research. But uh, So the sexual revolution comes on the heels of the racial reconciliation and civil rights movements of the 1960s. And if you think back to last week, we talked about gender shifting from an activity to an identity, and homosexuality was making the same transition during this time from an activity to an identity. It's not something I do where my grandparents would say, just stop it. Like, don't be gay. Like, don't go have gay sex. And they're like, well, regardless of whether I have gay sex or not, I am gay. Like, I am. That's my core fundamental identity, which may have existed in different pockets in the world over time, but certainly not at scale like it emerged onto the scene into the, in the 60s. And again, for all those reasons we talked about with gender, all the, 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 the historical philosophical shifts that were happening from the Renaissance onward. So that was another manifestation of that in the 60s. And so like we talked about with gender, if I am black and you come to me and say, hey, I love you, I accept you, but not your blackness, we know intuitively that's a ridiculous, that would be a ridiculous thing to say and should rightly invoke um, backlash. Now it is in the same bucket in people's minds that if you say, I accept you, but not your homosexuality, it's the same, you're, you're rejecting some fundamental part of my identity, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth, you make no sense, and that's an infuriating uh, uh, comment to make. So the civil rights movement of the 1960s, as it was, as it was applied to race, becomes um, leveraged for the gay rights movement along the same lines of this idea of identity, of fundamental core identity. You have a really key turning point in the gay rights movement with the Stonewall riots, uh, June 28, 1969 is when those began. And there was a, uh, a gay bar in Greenwich Village in New York City, which were prohibited at that time. They were illegal. It was owned by the mafia. And it was kind of just known among the police that that was happening there. It was a, kind of a gathering place for gay people, people dressing in drag. And the mafia would, would pay off the police. The police would kind of come once a month and do the obligatory clean out, you know, clear out the bar, but then everybody would wait in the streets and then just go right back in. Um, but uh, the police came unexpectedly um, uh, on June 28th, and it turned in. They tried to arrest several people. Um, the practice at the time was the police had carte blanche authority to come in, take somebody into the bathroom, make them strip down, and and assess their physical sexuality to see if their physical sexuality matched how they were dressing. Uh, it was a very invasive um, uh, process. Most of the people who frequented the Stonewall Inn were homeless, uh, homeless gay youth who slept in the park across the street. And they had enough one night and uh, resisted the police. The police um, started to use force. It turned into a big riot uh, and lasted for several days. 
looting and and setting things on fire. There was a lot of police brutality that was recorded at that scene. And it kind of sparked this outrage amongst the gay population. They had been um, organizing for for decades before this, but often their organization techniques were very proper. So men wore suits, women wore dresses. They would go picket at the Capitol building. After this event, it was like, forget it. This is who we are. And this is where the pride parades and it, it, it was never called gay rights before that. It was always kind of encased in something that was harder to, to figure out what was going on. Point being, gay rights kind of exploded onto the scene after this this apparent kind of victimization by the powers that be. Um, the next decade saw a very militant uh, gay rights campaign, um, kind of in response to we've been oppressed, we've been pushed down, we have we've been abused, uh, we've been excluded from from political discourse, and so uh, it was very militant, and it got almost nowhere in the 1970s with this posture of militant uh, militancy. Uh, the AIDS epidemic really swept through the gay community in the late 70s and early 80s, and it started to shift public opinion. And, uh, and actually, there was in the 80s, there was 1988, there was a conference where the gay rights movements and uh, gay rights, lesbian rights, and uh, later, a couple of years later, transgender rights came into the mix. But initially, it was just LGB, the lesbian, gay, and bisexual communities. And they came together and said, we're not getting anywhere. We, we have a PR problem. They hired two very prominent Harvard uh, PR experts, uh, one of whom I believe was, was a practicing homosexual. They came in. They had a conference outside of D.C. and Virginia. And, uh, and they came up with a very, it was like a 400-page manifesto. It actually got published. It's called After the Ball. You can literally buy it on Amazon. And it it outlines their approach that they were going to take over the next several decades to shift public opinion about homosexuality. And they were going to go after three main fronts. Uh, One was the APA, the American Psychological Association. Um, So they came up with a strategy to protest until homosexuality was removed as a disorder. Previously, it was thought of as a mental disorder uh, among the uh, psychological community. They were going to go after the legal system to remove all sodomy laws and establish legal precedents to, to, to establish rights for gay people. And they were going to go after the church to get homosexuality removed from the list of sins. And it's a very sophisticated, I haven't read the whole thing, but I have skimmed portions of After the Ball. It's a very sophisticated uh, uh, PR program to shift the American public um, uh, disposition towards homosexuality. As previously, it was just very small pockets of people who accepted homosexuality as a as a kind of a mainstream identity. Of course, where we are today, it has been monumentally successful, this effort. And uh, the AIDS epidemic helped. It helped paint the gay community as this kind of victimized uh, community that needed the support of the American people to overcome this horrific disease. So that kind of coincided at that same time. And so here we are today. And it's actually interesting as I've read a little bit of the um, this PR campaign and specifically the attempt at getting homosexuality removed from the list of sins. They were very uh, savvy. Um, and if you read kind of the the 
strategies, they list out. I mean, they know their Bible, they know their Hebrew, they know their context. They list out kind of the five main uh, scriptures that that expressly prohibit homosexuality. There's seven. Uh, there's a couple of others, and they very systematically go through. Here's how we are going to argue. Um, here's how we're going to distort. And I, I, it was this is a couple of years ago now, but I was looking into this text, and there was a, a specific quote. And it wasn't days later that I was on Facebook, and there was a, a girl I used to work with in a different context, and who is who is gay, and she um, wasn't quoting after the ball, but she was arguing with somebody about her homosexuality, and almost verbatim, as she was kind of dismantling some of the prohibitions in Leviticus, almost verbatim quoted this book that was written in the late 1980s that she's completely unaware that somebody very conscientiously planted these thoughts in her mind. I just thought that was so interesting. I was like, man, she thinks she is arguing along the lines of, you know, reason and, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to denigrate her, but, uh, somebody, a Harvard PhD who knew more about the human brain than she does, um, started, started kind of seeding these thoughts through these different channels and man, it's been effective. It's so crazy to me. So what does the Bible actually, oh, there we go. Um, so what does the Bible actually say about homosexuality? And man, there's loads we could talk about here. So I'm just going to have to kind of hit the wave tops. But, um, you know, historically you see the Wesleyan quadrilateral here. And this applies outside of, this applies to everything. But uh, historically the church has leaned on scripture first and then backed up scripture with tradition, backed up tradition with reason, and then backed up reason with experience in, in, in order to determine truth. Uh, today, the, um, the, the process, and this is not because of the gay community, this is because of what's been going on philosophically for hundreds of years, that whole psychological emotivism, the shift that's, that's happened to where my internal world is more determinative of reality than my external world. Now, I start with experience, so it's not uncommon for me to sit down with somebody who's struggling with this question of homosexuality, and they're like, they, they don't start with, well, the Bible says, and this, that, and the other. They start with um, these experiences that they've had where their gay friend is more loving than their Christian friend, or their, and those experiences are informing their reasoning process, and then maybe they will, they will cite you know, tradition and scriptures, but more often than not, experience and reason are driving the bus for a Christian, and then they might slap on a scripture out of context to support this position that they have, uh, that they have come up with uh, in terms of maybe a pro-homosexual position. Um, yeah, so everything I'm about to say, you need the context of everything we've already said about the two genders, the purpose of sexuality and sex, the prohibitions from above. Um, three things emerge for, yeah, three things emerge from the scriptures and these first two from Genesis 1 and 2 for, um, for that are necessary for biblical sexuality. Both partners need to be human. That Back to that, uh, no bestiality, the helper suitable for you. And both partners need to display sexual difference or otherness. So this is a key creational intent uh, cornerstone as to why I would argue, even if there were no prohibitions against homosexuality in the rest of the Bible, 
And all we had was Genesis 1 and 2, and then mankind living out the rest of the Bible, and, and, and there were not specific um, uh, prohibitions. I would still argue that the Bible is clear about heterosexual normativity, that, that uh, homosexuality would be outside of God's design in the same way, again, that rape or masturbation, we would argue, that is outside of God's design because of these other thematic elements. Um, so this idea from Genesis 1 and 2 and that both partners need to come from different families, that doesn't come in immediately from Genesis 1 and 2, but from the rest of the teachings of Scripture. Um, now, on top of that, we do have a host of other uh, prohibitions. Um, here's a one way of looking at this. You have these five progressive, and I, I hate using labels like progressive and whatever, but um, just for shorthand, these five progressive arguments, and and then I would um, offer some rebuttals to these. So argument number one, Old Testament ethics are not relevant to modern times. Um, Jesus referred to the purity codes of Leviticus 19 more than any other passage in the Old Testament, which I thought was interesting. Um, he refers to Leviticus 19.18 specifically more than any other Old Testament scripture uh, over 10 times, or 10 times, uh, which is part of the holiness codes. So I can't remember which that one is specifically, Leviticus 19.18. What is that? It's not about homosexuality, but it's making the point that Jesus affirms Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Um, the New Testament authors, Jesus himself, affirms over and over again Old Testament ethics. And this is a different teaching for a different time. But whatever the New Testament affirms of the Old Testament still applies to us today. You did have civic and cultural laws that don't apply to us today that applied to the children of Israel uh, in the wilderness. Um, but there was still a spirit of the law, even if the letter of the law doesn't apply to us. And the spirit of the law is clarified for us in the person of Jesus. So whatever Jesus reaffirms uh, still applies to us today. So Old Testament ethics are incredibly relevant. In fact, they are fundamental. They are foundational for our modern New Testament ethics. Understanding Again, Genesis 1 and 2, and then that the application of that in real time with the nation of Israel is the key to understanding sexual ethics today. Going back to Paul's arguments in 1 Corinthians 6, he builds that whole argument on creational intent from Genesis 1 and 2. So Old Testament ethics are certainly still relevant to modern times. Um, argument number two, the Bible forbids sexual excess, not specifically homosexuality. Um, they would argue that this was these these prohibitions were about people with sexual appetites that were out of control, so much so that they were going outside of the normal boundaries of sexuality between two humans, not just uh, whether male male, female female, or male female. Um, however, this doesn't hold up in context, uh, especially with Paul's arguments. Uh, he's arguing that people are not living by by God's design. Um, yes, he's addressing sexual excess, but he is more so specifically addressing um, sexual design from Genesis 1 and 2. Um, Paul salts his arguments in Romans 1 with multiple allusions to Genesis 1 and 2. Um, the clear, and we don't have time to go through each one, but the clear uh, 
intent in specifically the New Testament prohibitions of Romans 1 and uh, what's, the other? what's that? Yeah, let me just uh, pull it up here. Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. Those three are all framed in a creational um, uh, the argument is being used. The argument that's being used is that it's a violation of creational intent, not of sexual excess. Um, and you can go look at those specific scriptures. I think they're listed parenthetically back in the list of prohibitions. Um, context is king. So typically, whenever somebody's arguing this point, um, they are grossly taking the scripture out of context. Uh, so it doesn't. It it. It uh, doesn't take long to kind of dismantle that. The bigger the bigger argument is in this next one, argument number three. The English Bible is an unreliable translation. This is where this is where I was I was uh, um, shocked to see like the verbatim uh, kind of parroting on social media from after the ball. Um, this specific going after these translations, um, the Greek words malakoi in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 1 Timothy 1, 10, and then arsenikoitis are really difficult to translate. Uh, Malakoi, less so, it means soft and effeminate. And in, in Greek culture, the, um, that word was used for the passive male partner in the homosexual act. And sorry to get, I hope it's not too gratuitous as we talk through some of this, but... Um, but that word arsenicoitus is it only shows up two times in the New Testament, uh, once in First Corinthians six and one in First Timothy one, and uh, and is not used outside of scriptures. So it's not used in other Greek works at the time, and so um, the progressive argument would be this is a very you know whenever you have a rare word like this, uh, and Paul actually kind of made this word up, kind of like Shakespeare made up the word pandemonium. Pan, all, demons, like the chaos. He made up a word to display what was going on. Um, or was that Dante? I can't remember if that was Dante or Shakespeare. But uh, anyway, Paul does a similar thing here. He makes up a word that did not exist in his context to describe something that God was prohibiting. So the argument would be, well, that is uh, very little context, complicates our understanding, and, and makes it unreliable. However, the historic position is that it's not unclear at all. Uh, it is compellingly taken from the Old Testament. So the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the New Testament that was available in Paul's time. And um, in, from the Holiness Codes, and specifically Leviticus 18, and this is the most in the weeds we'll get tonight, so just hang with me. In Leviticus 18.22, um, there's a prohibition uh, it says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So they did not have a word for homosexuality. They just described the act. This, you know, the Hebrew prohibition, men don't sleep with men. Um, and actually, the, the more literal translation is, you shall not bed with a man as with a woman. That word lie means bed. It's the word uh, koite. Uh, in Hebrew, bed. Aaron is the word for men. So Paul takes the Septuagint, and he takes this common understanding uh, among the Jews of his time, and he makes up a new word, homosexuality. Basically, men betters is uh, people who, men who bed men, 
is the word that he makes up, or synequitas, from Leviticus 18, men who bed other men. It's pretty straightforward. It's right there in the text. Uh, Paul was a trained Jewish rabbi with a mastery of the law. This translation fits within the parameters of honest translation with the ethic of the Old Testament, with Paul's training, and it fits within the context of Paul's argument as an umbrella for sexual perversion that all forms of homosexual activity fall under. Um, so it it just, just saying this to say, you don't have to remember all this, but that argument that these words don't actually mean homosexuality are not standing on good translational footing, um, good hermeneutical footing. And typically that's a lazy argument based on the fact that Paul made up a word in Greek um, that combined two very well-known Greek words in a very clear context. Uh, and so the a, um, an honest uh, effort at, at uh, interpretation um, you don't have. You would have to do more interpretive gymnastics to argue against that than for it. Um, yeah, Monique. Yeah, well, we're getting there. Oh, yeah. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's let's move on. Uh, yep. Sorry, that's the shorthand for Septuagint. Septuagint means seventy, or it comes from the root that means seventy. And so there were seventy Greek scholars. This is during the Second Temple period, the intertestamental period between you know four hundred BC and the coming of Jesus. And because, uh, you know, after uh, Alexander the Great conquers that part of the world, Greek becomes the, the kind of the uh, language, the economic language of the region. So more Jews were learning Greek than Hebrew that were dispersed from Jerusalem. And so the scholars got together to translate the Old Testament Hebrew text into a Greek text. And the, the kind of the traditional... Uh, I want to say mythology, that's not right, but the apparently these 70 scholars worked on it independently, and when they came together, their translation was almost word perfect. They had used the same words, these 70 different Hebrew scholars that translated, uh, so that translation became known as the Septuagint, these 70 scholars who translated into Greek. Good question. So LXX is Roman numerals for 70. Um, and you can go in, and uh, it's an interesting, blueletterbible.org. Um, you can look up any text in the Old Testament and, uh, and cross-reference it and look at the, um, the original language, and you'll see a little tab. Um, you can read a text in different translations of the Bible, and you can actually read it in the Septuagint uh, to cross-reference New Testament texts. It's a really helpful tool. You'd have to really kind of geek out to get a kick out of that. But... Um, Okay, so, um, yeah, let me come back to that thought. Okay, so argument number four, so we're going to get to your question, argument number five is the last one. But argument number four 
isn't this like slavery or how the treat the church has treated women? Again, kind of coming back to this idea of it's a human rights issue. Uh, this goes this goes back to fundamental identity, and I would argue that homosexuality is not an identity any more than gender is an identity. Um, though it can be, uh, somebody certainly can be predisposed or attracted to the same sex uh, exclusively, but that is not a fundamental identity. Slavery is nowhere in the Bible considered a creational ordinance, um, and it was practiced differently in the ancient Near East. It was not chattel slavery, uh, and we don't have time to go through uh, how, how progressive the scriptures actually were when it came to slavery. Uh, of course, people have abused the text over time and used them coercively, like chattel slavery in the U.S., um, and that requires repentance. But the, uh, the abolitionists throughout history, whether in Roman times or in modern times, use the scripture for their understanding of the Imago Dei to erode the institution of slavery. Um, concerning women, we have to go back to creational intent again. Uh, the Bible, again, is radically progressive in context in its treatment of women, uh, whereas with same-sex relationships, there is consistent rejection, not only in the scriptures, but in a thousand years of Jewish and Christian history on both sides of the coming of Jesus. You have no instances of anybody arguing for same-sex attraction, for same-sex activity, uh, for 500 years of recorded history before Christ, 500 years of recorded history after Christ, um, there is unanimous, um, um, uh, sort unanimous prohibition, unanimous agreement around the prohibitions of same-sex relationships. Uh, so, the the whole human rights issue, I think, breaks down when we start talking about again, the nature of what it means to be human and that how I feel about myself is not fundamental to who I am. Um, and then it's really different from slavery and the treatment of women in the scriptures. And we could go more into detail in that if you like. Um, but lastly, um, so this idea that, uh, so it's a common argument that the type of homosexuality that was practiced in Paul's time that is being prohibited was exploitive. So you had these powerful male patriarchal figures who, who you know, their, their wives, their children were all property. This was common. This was just the, the way of things in Roman culture. And you would often have, as a male, you'd often have multiple slaves, and they were all sexual tools. Male, female, it didn't matter. And uh, there were many, there were many words describing the man-boy sexual relationship. It was very commonly practiced in Roman culture. Um, so a couple of these would be pederasty. So the Erastus was the dominant male. The Eromenos was the boy lover, um, and was was fully exploitive. So exploitative, exploitive, um, where it was you know somebody in power abusing somebody uh, who was powerless. Um, however, so so the argument is, of course, that's what Paul is prohibiting that practice because not because of the homosexuality, but because of the power exploitation that's happening and the abuse that's happening. Um, however, if it was about power relationships, if you actually look at the wordage, the verbiage that Paul uses, um, he could have used many words that specifically, because of how common this was in Greek and Roman culture, there were many words that meant 
pederasty that meant exploitative sex. And Paul uses none of them. He, there's a list of five or six that I saw that could have been used, but every time Paul prohibits homosexuality, which is why a lot of scholars think he had to make up a word um, because uh, he was specifically prohibiting consensual uh, homosexual activity, uh, exploitive activity is, is prohibited in other contexts. We don't, you know, again, like rape, we don't take advantage of somebody in that way. Uh, but Paul never uses language that refers to pederasty. Um, and the language he uses always uh, infers this um, uh, uh, common, or what's the, I have two sections here that are crossing over. Let me, um, yeah, uh, it, uh He's always using a language of mutuality. So in Romans 1, they are consumed with passion for one another. Uh, there's not this inference that one party is being abused or taken advantage of by another. Or in Leviticus 18 and 19, uh, a man lying with a man as with a woman, implying mutuality. Um Malakoy, he uses to talk about effeminate men who were the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. And he uses that word specifically and not eromenos, which was the boy in an exploit, exploitive sexual relationship. So over and over again, if you dig into the language, there is nothing that turns up that, that Paul was talking about exploitative sex, exploitive or exploitative. Anyway, whatever it is. Um, but, a, a homosexuality of mutuality. Um, this argument number five, the Bible condemns, yeah. Also, there's an argument kind of embedded in this that um, the homosexuality that's practiced today, this consensual, monogamous, lifelong homosexuality simply wasn't present at that time. So there's no way Paul could have been prohibiting that because it didn't exist. You guys hanging with me? I know this is like super in the weeds. What's that? You're not really arguing against arguments like that because it is mutual now. Right. But the argument, what I'm saying, the argument, the progressive argument is because, is that, um, sorry, so this would be probably argument number six. That's why I just realized I kind of combined two arguments into one here. What they're arguing is that the Bible is condemning exploitive sex, not uh, mutual, consensual, lifelong monogamous sexuality that that didn't exist at the time. So I would, I would argue that, I would refute that on two, two grounds. One, that the Bible doesn't use the language that would indicate that Paul's prohibiting exploitive sex. And that there was a huge presence of monogamous homosexual relationships during the time of Paul. Um, this has been borne out over and over again in academic circles. And there's just a kind of a smattering of, I thought I included a slide. Yeah, 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 there you go. So just a few examples here. Um, and you'll probably never be in a, you know, in a stage debate uh, on uh, whether homosexuality was practiced in monogamous contexts in, you know, ancient uh, Roman times. However, if you are, here are a few uh, resources for you. Uh, Craig Williams, and most of these are secular. These are not like, Christians writing to um, support the, ch the church cause. These are secular, except for when I quote uh, N.T. Wright. But the majority of these, Craig A. Williams at uh, Harvard, 
He wrote an extensive tome on Roman homo- Roman homosexuality um, and makes it clear that it was very commonly practiced um, in Plato's third symposium. Uh, the dialogue between Protagoras speaks of two men who were lovers for more than 10 years. Plutarch, uh, in a treatment called Dialogue on Love, speaks of many in his day who thought of same-sex love as a beautiful thing, uh, as a higher ethic, um, so on and so forth. Agathon, Parmenides, Xenophon, all of these were writings, Greek poets, um, who either cataloged real gay relationships or portrayed them in their work as being very common. They were very commonly accepted, these lifelong consensual uh, homosexual relationships. Um, Williams with Oxford Press uh, says, it's clear that some Romans participated in formal Roman ceremonies where men married other men, and these men considered themselves joined as spouses. Lamblicus, a third century writer, talks of the marriage between two women named Mesopotamia and Burdike. Uh, Lucian of Samosoto mentions the marriage of two wealthy women named Megilla and Demonosa. Um, Clement of Alexandria, Ptolemy of Alexandria, all talk of women being taken as lawful wives with one another. That was uh, permitted within Roman uh, laws and context, cultural context. Um, Two Jewish documents written shortly after the New Testament refer to and forbid female marriages that were becoming more prevalent in their day. Several archaeological discoveries depict mutual love between women, including a funeral relief that dates back to the time of Augustus, where women are holding hands in a classic gesture of ancient Roman married couples. So bottom line, Paul certainly knew of enduring same-sex love. It was not called homosexuality because that term wasn't coined until the 19th century. Uh, So Paul had to coin a term uh, to prohibit what was very common in his day, not just exploitive sex, but consensual, lifelong, monogamous, homosexual love. Um, And we could go on and on. Thomas Hubbard from UT Austin, um, et cetera. Uh, Here's just one more quote. Lewis Crompton, who's a PhD in English from the University of Chicago and a pioneer in queer studies. So he is certainly a gay advocate. He writes this as an academic. According to one interpretation, Paul's words were not directed to bona fide homosexuals in committed relationships, but such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstance. This is a gay secular person writing. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian. Gender is the point, not orientation or exploitation or domination. The issue is with exchanging the natural relationship between a man and a woman for unnatural sex between people of the same gender. Pretty definitive from a queer academic. Um, Interesting. And, And on and on. I've got more quotes, but I'll save them. All right, so it seems a very forced historical position to imply homosexuality that it is practiced in modern society as a new phenomenon. All right, that went long. I've got a few further thoughts, but I'm going to save those kind of pastoral thoughts. Are people born gay? Can people change their orientation? Um, and uh, and so on. So, but we'll we'll save those. Maybe just to wrap up, remember these prohibitions are con- are kind of couched within a context of sex being valuable, powerful, which is why the Bible is so clear and why 
It is important for the church to maintain biblical clarity and a plumb line of truth, even while um, being compassionate, gracious, patient in our discipleship and relationships, which we'll round out with here in the next couple of weeks. All right. Any any lingering questions? There was a lot of content, uh, but I wanted to put it out there because, again, the gay agenda is very uh, aggressive, and um, we stand on very firm footing. It takes a little work. Um, the the progressive gay movement has done a lot of work, and Christians have not commensurately done our homework. So often we find ourselves in these conversations. We're like, I guess I don't know. I guess I don't know. It's wrong. I don't. Um, but just a little bit of work and not to win arguments, but to, uh, graciously present the truth as a counterpoint, uh, can be, and is, is needed in, in our day and age. Any questions? She's so cute. I know, I know. Let's do this. Let's take let's take four minutes. Just turn to your table. And I know it's a lot of information, but just what were one or two ahas, one or two takeaways from tonight on biblical prohibitions around sexual distortions? Talk amongst yourselves for a few minutes. I'll pull us back together to wrap up.